I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 11th, 2017. Coming up, Conference on World Affairs participant Garrett Verschur asks and talks about new adventures in astronomy. The Conference of World Affairs is happening this week on the University of Colorado Boulder campus and at other venues around the city. Each year at this time, KGNU hosts a series of panels with the Conference of World Affairs throughout the week. Today's How on Earth show is a special edition in conjunction with CWA panel 2056 entitled New Adventures in Astronomy. Our guest is Garrett Verschuler, a radio astronomer as opposed to me being an astronomer on the radio. Dr. Verschur has worked with Jodrell Bank Radio Observatory in the United Kingdom, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in West Virginia, and Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Dr. Verschur also was a faculty member here at the University of Colorado Boulder and was the first director of the Fisk Planetarium. His work has ranged from measuring the interstellar magnetic field, to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, to measuring the small-scale structure in the cosmic microwave background. He has published numerous books, including The Invisible Universe, The Story of Radio Astronomy, and Impact, The Threat of Comets and Asteroids. Welcome to How on Earth, Garrett. Thank you, Joel. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it is really great to have you here, and thanks to the Conference of World Affairs to bringing you out. <laughs> I want to just start off your Conference of World Affairs bio has a line that says, you were the first person to see the moon's surface up close by a remarkable twist of fate. So I, I have to bite. Uh, do tell, what is the story behind that? Yeah, it's uh, the Russians landed Lunik nine on the moon in 1966 and uh, Jodrell Bank in England had a, a program where they would track Russian spacecraft and the Russians knew that and they col collaborated so one morning when I came in um, to work uh, I there were a hundred reporters there and I heard that during the night uh, Jodrell Bank had tracked the Russian spacecraft which landed on the moon and to cut a long story short that spacecraft carried a fax machine <laughs> but it was a fax machine based on the fax machines that we knew the Russians had used in an experiment with Jodrell years before. So they took a fax machine from the West, took the bits and pieces out of it, and landed it on the moon. So during the night, the, the Jodrell people heard the signal, and, and one of the top uh, people said, Hey, that's a fax machine. I recognize it. Let's <laughs> see if we can get a fax machine here and play the signal from the moon. Well, they did that, and there was nothing on it. The tape recording had nothing. So during that morning, um, because I was on the staff, uh, I inveigled my way into the little room where all the equipment was, and the director, Bernard Lovell, said, When the moon rises, why don't we just play the signal straight into the fax machine as opposed to using a tape recorder? And... Um, so when, that, when the moon rose, and I was there listening to it, and there were these sounds, and, oh, it's working. 
But then they developed the photograph, and there was nothing on it. It was half black and half white. And this happened after we already knew that the Russians had not received any faxes from the moon the previous day, because there was a Eurovision link all over Europe, sort of trumpeting their wonderful landing on the moon and the first pictures from the spacecraft, and there was nothing. So Lovell, after we got this half black, half white picture, he said, well, it's obviously failed. So he ushered everybody out to the conference room and to go and tell the reporters, this has failed, go home, and that was it. But I stuck around, and there was a little tent that the Daily Express technicians who brought the fax machine up from London during the night, um, in which they developed the photograph, because it took five minutes to get a photograph to the fax machine. Well, as I was standing there, the signal came in again, and the guys took the plate off of the off the disc and went into the dark room. And after a while, I heard the guy say, hmm, we seem to have something. And he hands me the tray of fixer out of the little <laughs> little tent. And there in my hands was the first photograph from the surface of the moon, ever, by anybody. By fax? By fax. <laughs> a fax that they was bought in the Western Hemisphere, but landed in a very clever spacecraft, which had these uh, petals, and when they unfolded, no matter how it landed, it would be horizontal. And they just took these pictures. And uh, what happened after that is another story. But that was incredibly exciting because I literally, I actually told Neil Armstrong the story on, on an eclipse cruise and uh, sat at a bar with him one night. And I said, I always wanted to go to the moon, but this is the closest I ever got. <laughs> yeah. Closer than anyone at the time there. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, well, that's great. I, one of the things I love about astronomy is its connection with history and things yes. like that. And it's great to hear these stories, especially from a first person perspective. <laughs> So getting into the topic of uh, the panel for today, the new adventures in astronomy, I wanted to just create a setting here first. Before looking forward, we've already looked back a little bit. Can you tell me uh, what were the significant new adventures in astronomy that you have seen over your career? Well, because my career goes back to 1961, that was in the days before quasars were discovered. And I remember vividly the discussions we would have because they discovered these strange sources which seemed to be double and nobody had any idea what they were. So that was a big deal. And when they finally were identified as being the cores of galaxies with black holes emitting clouds of stuff in two directions and so explained the double, that was, that was incredibly exciting. And then, of course, when the pulsars were discovered, that was also a pretty major mystery. And... Uh, that was the little green men mystery. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, back, you know, I, I point out to folks back in the early 60s, it was possible to know everything about radio astronomy. And we actually read every paper that was published every year because there was so little. So when I wrote my first edition of The Invisible Universe, I wrote it off the top of my head because I'd seen most of the... Most of the literature things. already. Yes. So, <laughs> and experienced uh, it. Yes. But then more recent, do you want to go to something more recent? Then? Sure. Um, I think one of the most exciting things that's happening right now is the discovery of fast radio bursts, which are, in their turn, totally mysterious. They were discovered by accident years ago in West, by uh, some folks at West Virginia. And these are just a sudden burst of radio emission from unknown sources. 
and I think a dozen or so are now known. But the most exciting part of that is that Arecibo Observatory, when they were re-observing a few of them, one of them actually repeated, and it's now known as the repeating fast radio burst. And it's the only one that's been observed to repeat. And why this is important was the original theories were, well, great big burst of radio waves from outer space, something blew up. But when they found the repeating burst, it meant that it was not destroyed, whatever it had been or was. Then that's where we are now. The first radio burst was observed at Arecibo, and then they started doing systematic measurements with other observatories, and they actually pinpointed the object, and it's in a galaxy about 3 billion light years away. But it uses this incredibly strong radio burst, and nobody has any idea why. And that's one of the big topics of research now, because this is utterly mysterious. It seems like a lot of astronomy has followed unexpected observations of sudden phenomena that are hard to track down because it's gone. You yes. don't GRBs and things like that. Uh, so these mysteries do take a little work to try to yes. follow up. So these are mysteries and new adventures in astronomy in the past. Starting to look a little forward and looking in the crystal ball, what do you think of as far as new adventures in astronomy? That's a tough one, because in my experience, we never know what's <laughs> going to happen next. That's true. You know, there are a few discoveries also made at Arecibo which are puzzling and which, if we solve them, may make a big difference to what we understand about the universe. One of them is that the um, there's a so-called radio astron program, which uses a spacecraft as another element in the radio uh, uh, receiver, and they simulate uh, telescopes which are almost as large as the Earth-Moon distance. And doing that, they have observed in a certain quasar that the object is very, very, very small, but it's very, very bright, and that means you can calculate how much energy is involved. So you can measure these small angles because even though it's not necessarily a big telescope itself, it has this very long baseline. That's right, yeah. And it's the, it's that distance rather than the collecting area that allows you to see yes. that detail. Now, we've known for a long time why radio sources emit radio waves called the synchrotron process, but these very long baseline observations using the Russian spacecraft show that that theory may be wrong. After having accepted it for the last 40 years, there's something wrong with it because the, these sources, this source is brighter than it should be. And that is quite extraordinary. So now they're planning a lot more observations to see if they can first confirm that and also perhaps look at some other sources. So brighter than it should be based by on... By the theory, right. according to the theory, which has been accepted for so many years. So that's a very As theories thing. tend to be until yeah. new evidence comes in. Yeah. And then there's the other fascinating thing, and I'm biased towards Arecibo here, but they were able to use the so-called very long baseline interferometer to measure the motion of uh, stars in the Pleiades cluster. Um, you can actually see them moving around, and that enables you to get the distance to the Pleiades. And our knowledge of the size of the universe depends entirely on this basic measurement of distance to the Pleiades. It's the first rung in that cosmic that, ladder correct. distance scale. Yes, that's right. And uh, there were certain, there were measurements of that, but then they launched, th then uh, uh, Arecibo came up with a very accurate distance to the Pleiades. 
But then there was a spacecraft that was launched, whose name slips my mind. The whole purpose was to measure this basic distance. And the two results it disagreed totally. So this, uh, the, the uh, skeptic said, oh, Arecibo can't be right. This, this famous spacecraft's got to be wrong, uh, correct. But then another spacecraft was launched called Gaia, and it's confirmed the Arecibo result. But the Arecibo result is extremely accurate. So now we have a very good idea of, quote, how big the distance, of, how large the universe is. So Arecibo and Gaia, their measurements were... Oh, now cons- overlap. Now overlap. But Arecibo is much more accurate than Gaia. So it gives... Having as accurate as possible those first few measurements yes. would propagate through all the other distances right. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So so Arecibo has the gold ribbon for that right Absolutely. now. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah. Knowing the distance to uh, objects in the universe is important because we want to understand how big it is, and a lot of astronomy is based on how far away things are. So right. we can yeah. measure how bright they are or how big they are or things like that. Going out to the extreme distances, all the way out to the cosmic microwave background. Now, those measurements are done a little differently, but you've worked in that field as well. Is that correct? Yes, the uh, cosmic microwave background has been observed in detail by a spacecraft called WMAP, and more recently by one called Planck. And what they do is they they remove from their observations all the known phenomena that are occurring in the foreground. They they apply what they call a foreground mask, and they subtract what they think is being produced in interstellar space. It's all that contamination from our galaxy. Yes, that's right, from the dust in the galaxy and so on. And then they end up with all these little structures, which they think then must be the seeds for future uh, evolution of galaxies. So the idea is that those small bits that are implanted on the cosmic microwave background are density differences that eventually create yes, galaxies. essentially, yeah. And um, those are at distances of the order of 13 billion light years away. But I have discovered in my... Actually, I discovered it by accident when I was working on my book, The Invisible Universe, that the small-scale structure in the cosmic microwave background seems to correlate with structure in the galactic hydrogen maps and that was tantamount to heresy because that would imply that the signals would be a few hundred light years as opposed to a few 13 billion light years away and then um, then most recently um, I found that I could actually explain the signal by invoking electrons between the stars in, in clouds of gas but cold electrons and the cosmologists had never considered that there would be a signal due to cold electrons in interstellar space. But we know they exist. And then it turned out that I could explain the, the so-called spectrum of the cosmic microwave background small-scale structure using this galactic source, this source of emission. And that's where it is right now. Um, I know the cosmologists are now taking it seriously because I can tell from the number of <laughs> downloads of my paper or our paper, I wrote this with my wife, published last December. And uh, where we go from here, I'm not quite sure. Um, I did some observations recently at Arecibo to try and confirm the theory, but in, it ended up <laughs> revealing something completely unexpected. And 
And that's about a week old, so I don't know what to talk about yet. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, fresh data, sometimes you need to let it uh, ripen. Mar marinate. Marinate, that's yes. Right. Perhaps yes. that's a better word, that's right? right. Yeah. So these cold or low-energy electrons, yes. these are foreground in our galaxy. Again, it's another uh, noise above the background yes. signal that needs to be subtracted That's right. before we can see the real background structure. Yes. So you think that maybe the cosmologists are starting to take this seriously. Have you worked with the team from WMAP and others to uh, discuss this a little more and maybe make that correction? No, they prefer not to talk to me. Uh, <laughs> um, and and what, when I now look at the data that I'm now working on and think about what it implies, it, it, it may mean that there's no small-scale structure in the cosmic microwave background, which is heresy. You think your data could actually account for yes. all of the small-scale yes, structure that they're seeing? Currently, I think that. But my ideas have a, what's called a half-life. If you see how long they <laughs> last before they're shown to be wrong. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, that's that's part of the business in science. Yes, it is. Sometimes we spend a good chunk of our time trying to prove ourselves wrong. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, so it's a fascinating topic. And you know, I've written a lot about the thrill of discovery when you discover something new. And when I, for instance, measured the magnetic field of the interstellar, sorry, the strength of the interstellar magnetic field, the first time I actually saw data online, it was a, a, an ecstatic experience because I'd been working on it for eight years and hadn't seen anything. But when I saw this phenomenon that I'm talking about with the cosmic microwave background, that was not a thrill. My first reaction was, oh, my God. Yeah. This can't be real. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is real, and now you have to deal with... Uh well, a huge amount of yeah. work has been put into WMAP and Planck with a billion dollars of investment in spacecraft. And here I spend maybe $500 on ink to print out color maps. And I'm saying, hey, guys, you missed something. Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't make the missions worthless. It just means that there's additional considerations that's correct, that they really. need to take into account. Yes. And that's why it's helpful to have people who work in the field but not on the mission and even in other fields yeah. looking at the data. You know, it's part of the feedback loop that goes on in science. Yes. And, and you talk about looking at the data. That's what I literally do. And my concern, and I'm going to voice this at the Conference on World Affairs, is that too much of the big science today involves people not looking at the data. The data go into the computer and something comes out the other end. And they never stop to actually look at a few areas to see what the computer actually did. And Sometimes that's what grad students or postdocs are for. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So it's a strange time to be in astronomy because of the the big projects are making you are hiding your mystery phenomena that you'll never see unless you look at the data. Well, there are there are discussions and conferences going on about how to deal with big data. Yes. Because a lot of these projects and missions are creating terabytes of yes. data trying to sift through. And in a way, you can think of it as a treasure trove for future generations. Yes. But uh, sometimes if you just skim the cream off the top, you miss some of the important details. Yes, yeah, absolutely. If you've just joined us, you are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. 
Our guest is astronomer Dr. Garrett Verschuler, who is in town this week as a panelist at the Conference of World Affairs, being held at the CU Boulder campus. We are talking about new adventures in astronomy. Let me go from distant to close here. I believe you have also worked on near-Earth objects and the risk of impacts and impending doom to the Earth. Tell us a little about your work there and what you see there as new adventures in astronomy. Well, I got into this years ago when I... I'm not quite sure how I got into it, but I wrote a book called Impact, The Threat of Comets and Asteroids, and uh, the two famous film movies that were made happened soon after that, and I'm sure that I triggered the imaginations of certain screenwriters. But anyway, um, this is a very real threat, and Arecibo Observatory, where I'm, with which I'm associated, ha- is uh, tasked by NASA to track these near-Earth objects when they threaten, when they look like they might threaten the Earth. Because the Arecibo radar, a one-megawatt radar, can bounce signals off these asteroids and plot their orbits precisely so you can de- determine whether or not they will strike. So you can act, you beam out a signal and, pick up the echo. and it comes back over yes. how great of a distance? Oh, uh, several times the moon's distance. And um, that's the only way to do this, to be sure where these asteroids are going. And um, NASA has a mandate from Congress to make sure that we do this. But the tragedy is that Arecibo Observatory is, is being threatened with closure because one of the um, people, one of the organizations that funds it, the National Science Foundation, wants to pull out. But NASA, I don't think will allow that to happen, but still we're in this turmoil right now as to how to continue funding uh, for the next five years. This has been an ongoing issue with a lot of observatories where what used to be the big grand telescope, four-meter telescopes even, are now considered small and not the next shiny thing. And they either get closed or have to be taken over by a consortium or some private university or institute. That's right, yeah. And it's tough tough finding money these days. it's, (laughs) It's very difficult. So what has your work at Arecibo involved. Uh, Some of us have seen it perhaps in uh, the movie Contact, I think, you know, a a big dish in the ground there in Puerto Rico. But what is an astronomer's day or night like at Arecibo? Um, Well, I've been using uh, results of a survey already carried out at Arecibo of interstellar hydrogen gas, which they've mapped with extraordinary precision. And what that's really showing us is that we didn't know anything about interstellar hydrogen gas before these very high-resolution observations. So that is fascinating to work with. So I have access to the data that these other guys obtained, and uh, and I'm working uh, working with that on a daily basis, actually. It seems that another of the sub-stories in astronomy is every time some new window is opened up, whether that window is in wavelength or the window is in time, or in resolution, we discover many new things that are a little different than what we expected before. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Whenever you can see more clearly, (laughs) you can see more clearly. (laughs) And then what you thought was out there isn't quite the way you thought it was. And that is fascinating to me, anyway. What is your hope for... The uh, coming years, say the next decade in astronomy, can you pick one thing that you're looking forward to? 
gee, I never considered that question. Because <laughs> you're so busy looking at the data uh, you have now. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Now, I think that uh, one of the most important things will be to uh, clarify this uh, foreground structure in the cosmic microwave background uh, data analysis uh, until, until I'm convinced that they've done the right job or they're convinced that I've done the right job. Um, that, that is really important because if it turns out that there is very little structure in the cosmic microwave background, then we're back to square one as to figuring out why galaxies exist. So, um, but it's it's very hard work and tiring, and I'm getting older, and and I wish that some folks would say, hey, I'd like to work with you on that, but uh, there's too much uh, at stake here for a lot of the cosmologists to even suggest something like that. Well, we appreciate the scientists who spend the time, the long hours, digging into the data. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on our show, Garrett. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Joel. That was radio astronomer Dr. Garrett Verschoor talking about new adventures in astronomy as part of the Conference on World Affairs being held at the CU Boulder campus this week. For more information about the conference, visit cwa.colorado.edu. And as a plug for another astronomy-related topic... I will be moderating, producing a panel tonight at Fisk Planetarium, uh, Garrett's old stomping grounds, at 6 o'clock this evening. The uh, panel is called The Emotional and Artistic Resonance of Science, and it will feature NASA astronomer Michelle Thaler, followed by a screening of the full-dome film Bella Gaia. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call KJNU Comment Line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.